looking tonight at Christ had to enter glory, taking for our text here, verse 26, was it not necessary for the Christ, for the anointed one, the Messiah, to suffer these things and, furthermore, to enter into his glory? That's what we're looking at this evening. We saw this first half. It was necessary for him to suffer, to be in a state of humiliation, to go to the cross. And now we come to the the better part. It is necessary that he be glorified. In 1865, Octavius Winslow, a prolific writer, a Reformed Baptist, wrote in his preface to the glory of the Redeemer these lines. He said, um, the spiritual resources of the Christian church the grace that is to preserve her in danger, the strength that is to nerve her in trial, the wisdom that is to guide her in counsel, the prowess that is to succeed her in battle, the consolation that is to comfort her in adversity, are all and alone in Christ. She is only equal to the times in which her lot is cast, and times more pregnant with present and coming events never existed as she lives in close communion with her divine and glorified head. And what the church of God requires collectively, she needs individually. Frequent repose and devout meditation within the hallowed temple of the Redeemer's glory. That glory, if by faith we have beheld it ourselves, it is the desire of our hearts to unveil and diffuse throughout the world. Love statements like that because it speaks about sola Christos gloria. To him receive the glory. Of course, the whole Trinity receives glory, but Christ is the all in all of the church. And these are great lines to begin our message this evening on the second half of Luke 24, verse 26. Yes, it was necessary that the Christ must suffer. That was the hard pill, no doubt, to swallow on the part of the Jewish observers of Christ's day. We saw last week how some interpreters in the Jewish, uh, uh, in the Jewish nation looked at Isaiah 53, for instance, that talked about the sufferings and, and the afflictions and even being smitten by God, but also the glory that is there and the, and the great spoil that would be his. And certain of them said, well, the, the glory is certainly the Messiah's. This is messianic. But the sufferings apply to Israel. They could not fit for for their unbelief, although they should not have been unbelievers, to bring these two things, suffering and glory, together in one person, which actually led some of them to say there were actually two messiahs, a suffering messiah and a triumphant one. But now we come to this second half. We come to that which is most fitting for the Son of God come from heaven, that he should have glory. It was necessary that he enter into glory. Um, How could the prince of life possibly die? That's the question that's difficult to answer. How could he who is the author of life die on the cross? But now the question, how could the prince of life possibly be kept by death? That's That's an easily answered question, isn't it? Death could not hold 
uh, such a one as the Prince of Life, as the Prince of Glory. We talk about the glory of Christ. We're talking about the, the right element for Him. This fits for the Son of God to be spit upon and to be smitten and to be crucified. That doesn't fit. But it fits in God's purpose. And it fits with His gospel that pays for our sins by the substitute. But now we come to that which says, we say, ah, we see. This is fitting for the Lord of glory. Which is more amazing to you, that Christ could die or that Christ could rise? It seems to be the first one that's more amazing. His glory, his entering into glory is his necessary condition and place. Heaven would not be heaven without his glory, would it? If you're going to heaven just for the toys, you're missing the centerpiece of glory, which is Jesus Christ. It's Emmanuel's land. It's his glory that is the the prize. This led some Puritans to make this strange statement that it would be better to be in hell with Christ than to be in heaven without him. Now, I understand that's a statement that kind of lays bare something that's impossible. It's impossible for Christ and for his people ever to be in hell. But they're making the point that the center of our faith is Jesus. Let us look then at this glory and consider that it was necessary for him to enter that glory. And I want to begin by noting the glory of his person and history prior uh, to this point. Jesus, recognized, as you recognize, was all glorious as a son of God before Christmas, before his his entrance into this world. He was all glorious as God the Son in heaven from the beginning of time, from the beginning of the creation on that first day when God said, let there be light. Jesus was the same yesterday as to his glory in his person before there was a day, before there was time and space or creation, before God said, let there be. His light of glory was from everlasting. His glory is divine. So even as we come in his lowest estate on earth, understand that Jesus, as the Son of God, never ceased to be the glorious, only begotten God. There's a sense in which his glory as God was never diminished in in heaven. It says in John chapter 1 that he was in the bosom of the Father, even as he was on earth. And that glory was beheld then by the apostles and others. The book of Hebrews and Paul go further and speak of him as the glory of the Father, the express image of God, the exact representation of the Father's person being the Son. And the glory of the Godhead in bodily form is seen in him, including the Father's glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ, says 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, his glory may be eclipsed, but it can never be extinguished. His glory as Redeemer began to shine then in the Old Testament, the glory of God typologically and prophetically, as we've seen in the two uh, two messages ago, when he says that the whole Old Testament was pointing to him. But what Jesus is saying in Luke is that his glory post-suffering That's what he's talking about. Do you not know that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and it was necessary for the Christ to enter into his glory? 
Jesus could not, as he came into this world, set aside his glorious person. That would ultimately mean he would deny himself, which as God he could not do. But the manifestation of that glory was covered for a season in his state of humiliation. Our confession, our catechisms talk about the elements of that state of humiliation. And of course, the text that is so pivotal is John 17, right? What did Jesus say? Father, restore unto me the glory that I had with you from before the world was. There is something about that glory that was set aside in his humiliation, set aside at the cross, which now is to be restored, beginning with his resurrection. When was that glory obscured or removed? If not, when he was made man, made under the law, come in the fullness of time, as Galatians 4.4 tells us. He is now, even as he is speaking to these disciples, he is now seeing that glory returning to him. It is his, that glory which places him above all as Lord. And God demonstrates this in him, that he is the all-glorious Lord of all, as Paul said to the Athenians, by this simple fact that God raised him from the dead. That is the divine marker that says, this is the Lord of glory. His being restored to and entering into his glory was what at this point? Barely eight hours old. He had just been resurrected that morning. And who knows what time it was in the day as he's speaking to these disciples on that road. This is the beginning of that wonderful glory. You and I, we look at this glory of Christ and his entering into it from below. What a view must the angels have had and those who had gone before into heaven as they see the Son of God descending and humbling himself and becoming a man and obeying to the point of death and so forth. Then they see the Son of God after his glory was covered for 33 years, returning to the glory which not only was his, but a glory that is now added to the glory of of the mediator, the glory of the God-man. We recognize that God's glory cannot be added to. The divinity of Christ cannot be added to or subtracted from. But as the God-man, that conjunction, that union of of the God-man, that can be added to in glory. It's his mediatorial glory that is under review here, that is increased and exalted This sees him ascending to heaven and taking his all-glorious throne, which is above every throne, leading captive all in his train, and everything, as Ephesians 1 says, being placed beneath his feet. So, that's the picture here. And there are several branches, then, of the necessity of Christ entering his glory. A glory, as we've already prayed and alluded to, a glory that just, let's face it, who can speak about this? Your eyes are going to see this glory, and it'll make this sermon look very dim. We have just a glimpse of these things, but what angels see, what men who've been perfected, women made made perfect, what they see is far beyond what any tongue can say on this side of glory. It was necessary, first of all, that he enter his glory on account of the plan and promise of God. God said that my Christ is going to be seated in his holy and heavenly throne 
of Zion. Psalm 2. The people of Israel, the Gentile nations, they rise up against him as one and they say, No, he will not be king over me. But he who sits in the heavens laughs at that. Indeed, his Christ is seated as the Lord of glory, and all the world is given unto him, rather than the world being able to stop him. This is the promise that was made to the Son as mediator, even before the foundation of the world. Recall what we said last week from the Holy War by John Bunyan, but what a, what a great, great uh, and full cost it would be for the Son of God to become the surety for the elect. And the father turns to him as John Bunyan puts it and says, you know what this will cost you. You must sacrifice everything. And he says, I know, and I take it on me. But we have to recognize at the same time that there was as well a great and all-glorious joy that was involved in that covenant of redemption. That Jesus would be exalted, that he would lift up the Godhead, as it were, and restore the glory of the Lord in such a rich way. And so this plan, this purpose, is predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament. His exaltation, his kingdom had to come to pass because God purposed it and then he prophesied and pictured it for us. Passages like Daniel chapter 7, passages like Psalm 110, which opened our service, and Psalm 72 of the kingdom of the Lord, and Isaiah chapter 9, and so many other passages, to name just a few. These predictions necessitate the inescapable result that Jesus must be crowned Lord of all and given that name which is above every name. He who knows the end from the beginning, so planned, prophesied, and predicted this very thing to come to pass. Now, that's the first point. Secondly, see how he must enter his glory based on the fitness of his person to do so. There must be one mediator between God and man who can bring about a reconciled God and a people to be redeemed to all eternity. There must be a Savior who is able to bring in a righteousness that is everlasting, that is eternal, that's able to bring in a kingdom that shall overcome all of its enemies and rule perfectly in a new heavens and a new earth and that forever and ever. And who can bring that about? Who can do that? Who can be this salvific atlas that takes the world upon his shoulders and brings this fallen, cursed creation back into the liberty of the sons of God, which he has purchased, which he has brought about by his redemptive work. The only one who can bring that about is the Son of God made flesh. He had to suffer in order to bring many of his brethren to glory. Jesus, in both of his natures then, divine and human, must be so glorified. His deity, we know, has to be glorified. That should be a no-brainer. Of course, the Son of God must be in heaven over all. But as the mediator with our human nature, which has overcome sin, the curse, the devil, death, and judgment, including hell, that human nature, too, must be exalted to the highest human degree. His flesh, incorruptible. His body is unique because of his resurrection, because of his glory, and his soul enters into the possession of the fullness of joy at the right hand of God, where there are pleasures forevermore, pleasures beyond what any creature could possess. 
uh, Stephen Charnock, who I have to confess here, I am leaning very heavily upon him. He's probably going to talk to me when I get to heaven. I say, why did you plagiarize my material? I say, because it was so good and really it wasn't yours in the first place. He says, Christ's soul has joys without mixture, pleasures without number, a fullness without want, a constancy without interruption, and a perpetuity without end. And having a fullness of joy, he has a fullness of knowledge in his soul. He increased in wisdom in his soul as he did in stature, and that is really in the one as he did in the other, Luke 2.40. His humanity had not the knowledge of all things in his humiliation. His soul had one thing revealed to it after another. But in his exaltation, his soul is, um, is endowed with all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He knows now the time of judgment, since he's constituted a judge of the world, whereof his resurrection was an assurance to men, and no less an assurance to himself, Acts 17.31. Since by his resurrection, the first step of his exaltation, God judged him a righteous person and acknowledged him his son with power that had redeemed a world whereby there was an evidence also that by him he would judge the world. His humanity is greatly exalted, you see, in this very way, um, both in his deity and also in his humanity. And then thirdly, this was a necessity for him to function as the savior of his church, his body. In order for him to be mediator, he must be a heavenly priest. He must be a magnificent prophet who's able to anoint his people He needs to be the king of kings mediatorially. Without his glory, he could not apply what he had attained through his humiliation, through his cross. He could have done all of that work as a savior in his humiliation. But if he's not exalted and entered into glory, there's no way to apply that gift. As glorious as that gift is. He was delivered over to death because of your offenses. That's what Paul writes in Romans 4. There's no more atoning for sin after he said, it is finished. All of that took place on the cross. But there is a raising then, he adds, for your justification, for the application of the cross work, apart from which none could or would be saved. This is part of his mediatorial glory that is then applied to you. And what does he apply? Only justification? No. He applies regeneration to you. He applies eternal life. He applies adoption. He gives you faith and repentance. He gives you sanctification. He gives you perseverance. He gives you assurances and comforts along the way. And yes, all of your glorified state, all of the glory that is yours already and to be revealed to you at the coming of the kingdom. All of that comes solely through Christ, your glorious mediator. He has been given all authority and power, both in heaven and on earth, both for saving his people and for putting down all of his enemies. And the last enemy to be put down is death. It is he who will bring in the kingdom of God. He will cast out all of that which offends the Father. 
It is he who is going to overthrow the Antichrist and the false prophet. And it's he who casts the devil into the lake of fire after he has been chained for a thousand years. Now, all of this had to come to pass as it is not only the plan of God, but it's the great delight of the Father to do so. The Father delights in the glory of his Son. He is the one who is saying to us, as it were, in the words at his baptism, in the words on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. See his glory. It pleases me that he's exalted. It pleases me to give him this name. It pleases me that he shines forth and is the heart and soul of heaven and earth. Hear him. Behold him. Magnify his glory. Is this not written now in sovereign letters over time and eternity? He who, as Philippians 2 says, has sunk so low is now exalted so high. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him. And the Father loves him to be so. He delights in his Son. See, too, the Holy Spirit fully, gladly delighting in him and his reign, putting himself, as it were, at the bidding of the Son of God, the mediator, to be and to do all the Son's holy and the Father-pleasing will. He who had the Spirit without measure here on earth pours out lavishly upon all his people the Spirit of grace to all eternity. All the gifts of life are communicated from this one head to all the members. There is, think of it, not a single grace that has not come to you from Jesus Christ. Every single bit of it, every tiny little sliver of grace, mercy, comfort, goodness, redemption, every bit of it comes through union with this Savior. Not a single bit of it that's not communicated by Christ through his Spirit to you. And the triune God loves it to be so. This is a fullness of glory, a fullness of salvation, a fullness of God's purpose and plan, a fullness that is beyond all measure. Do you see how pleasing now it is for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit then to save? This brings glory to the, to the triune God, to the Godhead. He's not reluctantly saving people. It's not a, a side issue with him. His heart beats for salvation. He loves to redeem sinners. God's glory is advanced, not diminished, by calling in a great host, which no man can number, calling in the nations of this world. He is more, think of it, he is more willing that you be saved than for you to be saved. Far more willing. He desires that the wicked would turn from their ways. Do I desire that they perish? I do not desire that. That's his attitude. Has he willed to save everybody? No. But his character is loving. And he calls even those who he knows will not repent. Oh, please don't. Don't do this. Don't go to hell. And so see how highly exalted man is now through Christ. This new humanity, this second Adam family is hitched to him. We are now described as heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus. What dignity, what joy, what love that you could be called the children of God, and you are. Why? Because of the glory of Christ, which was necessary. Christ could never let you go 
without, as it were, letting go of a piece of himself. And there will be no part of Christ that will wind up in perdition. That's what the Bible says. He keeps all of his bones. He keeps all of his people. And then, furthermore, see how awful and terrible then this glory must be to those who are unregenerate. Those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, still unpardoned, unforgiven, though such a willing Lamb of God bids them to come. Is there any greater, more provoking sin than, as it were, to poke out the eye of the Son of God's necessary glory of redemption? How dare anybody reject this glorious Savior, his glorious free offer, you see? The great delight and happiness the believer will have when, when Christ at last is to be seen Do you realize that what you and I experience and will experience so fully, the wicked do not experience at all? There is no joy at the glory of this all-glorious Redeemer. They're strangers to it. They have no part of it, but rather dread and full terror, an awful no, no, and a groan will meet them as they see the Christ. They will bow the knee. They will confess him as Lord but only by constraint and not by the joys of salvation. But dear ones, let us take solace and instruction then from this glory. I mean, we could, you know, I think that certain mystics in the past have gone astray by, they just want to kind of gawk at the glory of God and and come up with these, you know, fancy ways of, of looking at things. But the glory of God is meant to impact us. It is to affect us. Um, Looking to a glorified Christ should motivate you, should enthrall you, should elevate you, should enervate you, and make you to live above where you are already seated in heavenly places. What dignity is yours, child of God? And the more you look upon Christ as your head, as your life, as your all in all, this all glorious one, there are great encouraging things in your life that should be impacting you. And that's where Charnock gives us seven, as I'm going to wrap up very quickly. Number one, he says, it will establish your faith by looking at this all-glorious Savior. How fit is he for you to trust in him? Stop resting in yourself, relying on yourself, and rest in Jesus. How dare we trust to the reeds and the puddles of the creature when the creator himself has come and taken our own nature upon himself, and is this all-glorious Savior, the rock of your salvation, the foundation of the church. Number two, it will inspire patience and courage in your suffering, afflictions, and disappointments. Look at the greatest sufferer now. Jesus is the greatest sufferer. He endured the most wrath possible. He did not open his mouth on account of the joy set before him. But Jesus, the same Jesus, rewards everything that he takes away. Do you have poor health? Do you have chronic pain? Are you suffering? Listen, Jesus' suffering was far greater, but look at him now. Be patient. Have courage. You have a glorious Redeemer who is able to reward all that he takes away, and he will give you strength to go through that valley. Thirdly, it encourages prayer. As we saw this morning, the importance of prayer in the Christian battle. I'm just going to quote what Charnock says here, Stephen Charnock. 
He says, uh, John uh, 14, 12, and 13, Because I go to the Father, because I go to be glorified, whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do. For so some join the words. He was glorified as a priest, not only because he was one, but that he might be in a better capacity to exercise the remaining part of his office. The continuance of his priesthood is a great part of his glory, and it's a part of this office to receive and present the prayers of his people, Revelation 8.3. How cheerfully may we come to him who has entered into the Holy of Holies for us if we had sensible apprehensions of his present state. A dull frame is neither fit for that God that has glorified Christ nor fit for that Christ that is glorified by him. But praise God that our glorious Savior is merciful to our weaknesses. He takes our dull, weak prayers and presents them perfect, perfected before the throne. So it encourages prayer. And number four, it will form us to obedience. Angels love to obey the God-man. How much more you? He is Lord of you by right and has the strongest obligation to your obedience. He loved you, gave himself for you, sacrificed his all for you. He is all glorious that you might obey him. How worthy he is of your obedience. Number five, it will put the world in the right place for you. It will move it out from over your heads. As an unbeliever, the world is over you. The world has dominion over you. The God of this world dominates you in your lost condition. When you become a Christian, you're, you're brought up over that, but the world is still in the Christian's heart. The world still sits within. It doesn't have dominion anymore, but it still is a struggle in every Christian's mind and psyche in this present imperfect state. Uh, we are to more and more than place the world beneath our feet as unworthy as a God and object of our hearts. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. It helps us to put right our perspective on this world around us. And then six, it will quicken our desires to be with him. Paul could write, Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, to stay here would be benefit to you, but my better desire is to go to be with Jesus. It'll make you hunger and thirst for the, the, the fullness of salvation that still awaits. And then lastly, it will encourage those who are at a distance from him to come to him, to believe in him. Behind all of the rich, comforting, winsome, loving invitations is this all-glorious one who sits above. Here is God for you so that none can be against you. If you are outside of Christ, he calls you to himself today. Um, Don't you want to have God for you? Don't you want to have God in your life in such a way that you are, are truly blessed and protected and provided for, not just for time but for eternity? To be able to say in this glorious, triumphant way, who then can be against me? You want to be able to have that. And so many don't. We need that. And I look at that and you wonder, how can any deny him then? How can anyone not come to such a Savior who is so glorious, 
who has provided all things in his marriage supper, he says, come for all things are ready and I will ready you for glory. And when people say no, doesn't that tell you the strong nature of sin? That sin will actually say no to that. If that doesn't tell you what sin is, I don't know what does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we serve a a Savior who humbled himself so greatly. And yet now, Lord, is wonderfully glorified. He will never be humbled again. We thank you, Lord, that we look for the Savior who comes now apart from sin and with great triumph, who comes with all of the angels, comes with the glory of the Father, who comes with the the shout of, of victory, the one who will cast out all evil, the one who will bring in all that is good, and the one who will save only those who've been bought with the price of his blood. Thank you for the gospel, glorious gospel because of a glorious Savior who is our all in all. Lord, help us to look to you. Forgive us for looking to ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, for even looking to lesser things within the Christian religion, for looking to the church, for looking to men, for looking to uh, even the means of grace, more than looking to Jesus and elevating things in the church that ought not to be. Oh, Lord, we pray for your help. We would see Jesus, as the Greeks said. We would fix our eyes upon him and trust him and follow him, the all-glorious one. In his name we pray, amen.